Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this special episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, recorded in front of a live audience at Bath Festival. I'm Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, and along with Thea Lenarducci, a commissioning editor at the TLS and the regular co-host of this podcast, we were delighted to be joined at Bath by Robert Webb and Margaret Drabble. Robert Webb is an actor, a comedian and a writer. You'll probably know him as one half of the comedy partnership Mitchell and Webb. He was in the series Peep Show for over ten years and he played Bertie Wooster in the West End to great acclaim. Last year he published the wonderful and enjoyable How Not To Be A Boy, which manages the very difficult balance of being both very funny and also extremely serious. It's part memoir about family life growing up in a small town in Lincolnshire and part discourse or argument about expectations of masculinity and the damage they can do. He's now working on his first novel. Margaret Drabble also started out as an actor and then became a writer, but she started writing earlier in her career. Her first novel was published in 1963, but she has said that it was only by the time she got to her sixth, The Needle's Eye, that she felt like she could do what she wanted with form and plot and narrative voice. She has a damehood and a CBE, and her fascinating, absorbing and insightful work includes a memoir, short stories, literary studies and 19 novels, of which the most recent is The Dark Flood Rises. Thea began by talking about the family and the family's role in shaping the individual, and by asking Margaret, who is written in both genres, what determines her choice of form and how differently she experienced the writing of a memoir versus the writing of a novel. It's made for me in that there are certain kinds of memoir I cannot write and will never be able to write. There are subjects I could never touch in my family. Uh, so I fictionalise those parts. And the only memoir I've written has been quite evasive and about a mem- largely about a member of my family with whom I had no problems, and there's only one of them. So, you know, it was a, <laughs> <laughs> a rather restricted palette, really. And this was my auntie. Right. <laughs> um, and so, yes, yeah, so that, that, was, that was, as you say, that was, that was a memoir about your, your auntie. Um, as compared to uh, The Peppered Moth, which was... A, a fictional account of your mother, and it stayed very close to the truth for at least part of the novel, didn't it? You're quite right. i completely forgotten The Peppered Moth, which was about my mother, and caused um, some upset within the family because they felt I hadn't got a right to write about my mother, although she was dead. 
And I did have quite, a, my, my mother was a difficult woman. I didn't have a difficult relationship with her. I had a kind of quite straightforward relationship with her. But she was difficult and she was unhappy. And I think I wanted to write the book to make myself feel better about her life. But in fact, it didn't really work. I went on feeling rather unhappy about her life. So um, the experiment of it, I understood better why she felt so unhappy. Because going back into her childhood, her Yorkshire childhood, um, the struggle she'd had to confront adult life, her, her depressions, her, her, her dissatisfactions. I was able to place her in a generational context um, by writing about her. But she still remained very problematic, although dead. Can I quote a little bit of something from the peppered moth back at you, sorry, mm -hmm. just a little tiny mm -hmm. bit, um, that you say at one point, if this story were merely a fiction, it would be possible to fill in these gaps with plausible incidents. But the narrator here has to admit to considerable difficulty, indeed to failure. I have tried, and I apologize for that intrusive authorial eye, which I have done my best to avoid. Um, and I was wondering why, why you felt you had to apologize for, for the authorial eye, and why, why were you trying so hard to avoid it? Is that from the epilogue? I can't remember where that bit came from. Um, I think it's when you're talking about their marriage. The marriage. Yeah. About oh, why they I, got about married. why my parents got married. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I suppose I wanted to put my cards on the table because mm. it was going to be obvious to any reader who knew, any, knew anything about my life story that this was my mother and my father. Um, and I hadn't been able to write a memoir about them. Um, mm. I, I couldn't have written about them as they were, but I left enough of them in and I had to say that it wasn't the entire truth, that I'd invented bits. But I did quote things that really happened. I mean, my father's politics are there, and I did publish in full my mother's manifesto to the women of Sheffield when my father stood in the 1945 election for the Labour Party, and I published her manifesto, which I found when she died, and it was women of Sheffield, the, 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 this is what we're fighting for in the post-war years, and it was rather affecting. So I kind of wanted to say that some of it's true and some of it isn't. Mm. Um, so you wanted to signal that very clearly? I wanted to signal that I hadn't made everything up, but there were some things that my imagination couldn't enter into. Yeah, sure. Um, Robert, I was interested as well that you, you also address your reader actually very directly you kind of explain things and sometimes you apologize and sometimes you tell the reader what to do. You say, come here or go over there or, you know, <laughs> look at this. And I was wondering why, why you chose to be so direct. I suppose I just wanted to, because it was a, a memoir and it's a, it's a single volume memoir, I, you know, so the last thing I wanted to hear was that, that it shows promise. Um, I was only going to do this once and I suppose I wanted to take the opportunity to sort of write how I talk and to make it a very accessible and intimate um, book because I was talking about something that uh, some of the readers, uh, male readers in particular, I worried that they were going to find it uh, challenging because I'm talking about masculinity and how it can be harmful and some men sometimes experience that as an attack on their character rather than something that, that we've all been sort of conditioned to perform. So my two ace cards were humour and mm -hmm. trying to make them laugh and get under the radar there yeah. and intimacy just by sort of you know pulling my trousers down first and daring them to laugh <laughs> um, and finding that in general because I've been hearing from uh, men and women who've read the book that actually they haven't laughed and they've gone yes of course we've all got a charming birthmark in the shape of Portugal or, or, or whatever it is so, so um, metaphorically um, or literally 
Um, so, yes, it felt like, um, uh, you know, I'm only going to do this sort of first-person, this-is-me thing once, and so let's just relax and just take the reader along with me. And did you think about who that reader was when you're saying you? No, not really. I it mean, in, you weren't talking to. In my vast experience of writing a whole book, um, <laughs> I'll be giving Margaret some tips later. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, I suppose, I, to be honest, I, I write to please myself. Uh, it was really, you know, I just wanted those sentences to go click in a way that I liked. Um, in various points of different parts of the book, I suppose I was thinking of the living people who were in it and how, what they were going to make of it. Of course I was. And, uh, and my, I, I ended up sending uh, uh, early drafts to all of the significant living people in the book. I didn't give them a veto, but I did, because I thought that would melt their brains, but I, I, I did invite comments, and thank goodness they all came back with a double thumbs up. Yeah. Um, if they'd had objections, I don't know what I'd have done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and, and that's the point, because um, both The Peppered Moth and um, How Not to Be a Boy, the, 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 sort of the towering parental figures in both of those, those books were dead before you, um, yeah. you, you created the work. Presumably that, that's, that's, that's very significant. Was the writing, did you experience it as a sort of expurgation, or was it, was it cathartic for you? Um, well, I mean, my mother died 28 years ago, so it, it was, that was, um, you know, I've had that long to get used to the idea, so it, it, I didn't worry about her so much, if that makes any sense, and I, I don't have any uh, faith in the afterlife, so, you know, even if there were such a thing, I'm surely they've got better things to do than to take umbrage of how, how I've portrayed <laughs> them in a memoir. Um, my father died in 2013, which is much more recent, and the honest... Uh, the honest response is I couldn't, couldn't possibly have written the book while he was still around because um, he, uh, he was not at his best in the 1970s when he had this young family that he didn't quite know what to do with. And my mother divorced him when I was five. And so I, I have to sort of start at the beginning in that, in that respect. I couldn't really miss that out. Later, I get to be generous about him and, and say all the things that I admired about him. But I had to kind of include that bit. And it would have been just too mean to do that while he was around. So, uh, so yes, uh, it's not that I was drumming my fingers waiting, <laughs> but he was, he was already, he'd already died before I had the idea for, for how to approach the book. Mm. Um, Margaret, can I just pick up on that? You said that you, um, you, you wrote about your, your mother particularly and thought it would help. In yes. fact, you say this in The Pattern in the Carpet, don't yes. you? You specifically say, I wrote about her and I thought it would help and it didn't help, yeah. actually. I thought I would feel better about it, mm -hmm. and I don't. So you write about your, uh, your auntie Phil yeah. in, in The Pattern in the Carpet, because yeah. that, that's a much more straightforward relationship, a happier yeah. relationship. She had a better life. Uh-huh. And did you feel that that was more successful in terms of the writing, in terms of the, the work? No, it's a much less ambitious book, really. I mean, it's a sort of jigsaw of a book. It's mm. just bits and pieces. It's a completely freestyle, weird kind of memoir, which started off as a history of the jigsaw puzzle, but my editor didn't seem yeah. to think that was all that interesting, which I, I thought <laughs> was riveting. But um, I, I wish I'd stuck to the original plan in a way. But, but a good friend of mine, hearing me talk about it, said, really, you're trying to write about your aunt. And I did realise that through writing about my aunt, I could say the nicer things I had to say about other bits of the family. Um, but, but you use the word cathartic when asking Robert about his book. And, and it wasn't really cathartic. I mean, I, I think writing the pattern in the carpet 
made me smile, and I know my... my Yes, I, I think my family liked it better than the peppered moth for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there's, a, there's a real concern in, in, in a lot of your work, Margaret, with um, genealogy. Um, yes. And in, in fact, in uh, Pure Gold Baby, um, Jess, the character, is I think she's uh, involved in a study of, of, of local DNA. Um, and, and there's an especial focus on matrilineal passage of traits, on that relationship between mothers and daughters and, and, and grandmothers in your work? My, yes, my, mitochondrial DNA, I think, is what I went into, yes. which is the story of the peppered moth and evolution and oh. carrying on the, fe the female traits. Yes, I, I was very worried about transmitting um, bad characteristics through my family um, and having inherited some. So I, fi I find the whole genetic question. I used to believe when I was young that nature was a blank sheet and that each baby was itself and nurture was all. And of course, as you watch the child grow, you realize that nature is, plays a far greater part than you thought it did, for good and for bad. And Robert, there's, there's a fear with, with you as well, at least initially, until you sort of make, make your peace with um, the role of, of your father. Um, <clears throat> the focus being more on the patrilineal traits, obviously. Um, mm. And, and what, what Margaret was just saying now about how you, you don't realise quite, quite how soon things start to shape, shape the individual. You talk about it quite petrifyingly, how it happens in the womb already before the baby has even been born. Yes, I mean, that's, um, I mean it's not a social science book with 30 pages of notes in the back, but I do <laughs> quote uh, scientists every now and again, and uh, Lise Elliott and Cordelia Fine, um, I think it's in Pink Brain, Blue Brain, where... Yeah, that, um, she's talking about how mothers tend to lower their voice when they know the sex of the child. Well, not child at that point, when they know the sex of the fetus is male. Uh, they take more time and they lower their voice slightly. And, they, uh, and also when the child is born, uh, the, the parents are more likely to express um, pride if it's a boy or happiness if it's a girl. Um, fathers look forward to meeting their children for gendered reasons. If it's a boy, they're going to uh, bond over sports, and mothers think they're going to have a terrific relationship with daughters, some hope. Um, <laughs> but, um, so this is all sort of going on before the child is born. Um, so I, no, could I just say that, that when we were expecting our babies, we didn't know the gender. Of course. So mm. there could be no pre-gender expectation, because oh, mm. we never had a scan. The baby popped out, and I guessed the sex of each of mine wrong. <laughs> but um, but that, that was fine. But it can't have had prenatal impressions because I didn't know what it was. And no. did you really have no idea at all? Because, you know, there are so many old wives' tales about, oh, well, if you've got a lot of morning sickness, They're it's most wrong, likely though. to be... A, yeah, they are always wrong. I, I expected to have girls because we were... Uh, I, I was one of three sisters mm. and my brother was so much later that boys were sort of afterthought in our family. <laughs> Women were what, what we had. So I was astonished to have a boy first. Yeah. But so, Robert, do you think there's now more conditioning rather than less? Because now you can start. Yeah. Now yeah. you could know pretty I, I wasn't, early on. I wasn't trying to make the point that conditioning starts there, but just that um, the, these are unconscious things that parents are doing without necessarily noticing. Yes, yeah. so it could be. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that it's actually going to affect the baby. I mean, of course, we don't know because there's, um, there's no control experiment. Yeah. You can't put a, a, no. a male infant and a female infant in a controlled, safe, <laughs> isolated <laughs> environment and see what they do differently before they go spare. Um, that would be unethical, to put it mildly. I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, 
But there is some evidence that, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly straying out of my <laughs> realm of expertise here, but I believe <laughs> there's evidence that uh, when it comes to nature versus nurture, it's something of a red herring because uh, the environment affects the way the brain develops. So it's, it's those pathways are, are rooted in response to what the child hears and does and repeats and learns. So it's not just... Uh, so nurture is doing some of the naturing, if you see what I mean. Yes, I mean, it, it shapes, in fact, shape, in some way shapes the brain. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, I would like to talk about anger, if that's all right. <laughs> right <laughs> I've got anger written down here a lot without making anyone too cross. It seems to me there's quite a lot of anger in both of your books. Um, Robert, you write about how anger sometimes seems like the only emotion that boys and indeed men are allowed or encouraged to express. So grief or confusion or frustration often come out as anger. Is that... Um, yes, I mean, um, a lot of the book, you know, the, the sort of rules that I, as I understood them of how to be a boy, that boys are supposed to be disruptive and boisterous and noisy and they would rather do maths than reading and they're running and jumping and swimming and climbing trees and I couldn't really do any of that and so I, I found it quite a, a tight fit and I can play most of that for laughs in the early chapters but there is a serious side I think which is the stuff about uh, emotional repression basically that being, telling boys to man up and boys don't cry and shrug it off and turn it off and ignore it and all of these unwanted emotions and it does have to come out somewhere and it often comes out as anger so I mean I, the way the book works really is that I speak for myself but mm. I'm hoping to ring some bells I still get angry when what I'm actually feeling is fear or angry when I'm what I'm feeling is grief or angry when I'm embarrassed um, and I, I think that starts in childhood when, because boys are you don't develop those skills to become your own emotional detective and to work out why you're feeling what you're feeling. Mm. And does that ring a bell with you, Margaret, then as, as a writer and observer and mother of, of, two, of two sons? There's, there's a, a line in, in the millstone where the character's sister, they're, they're exchanging letters, and, and one sister says to the other who is expecting a child, um, says, oh, yes, my son, Nicholas, he's, he's, reaching that, he's just reached that violent age, that, that phase that is inescapable <laughs> to all boys. <laughs> yes, um, I, I, I'm, I was very interested in, in, in Robert's take on, on, on anger. There is a moment where you actually hit somebody in the book. I nearly hit somebody you, who's insulted my girlfriend. But he was insulted, yes. but you, you didn't actually make contact. No, because yeah, I had a, you big, were just about a, a bigger to. friend who got in front of me, yes. Yes, that, that's right. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately for his face and my puny wrist. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, um, anger is something that... I try not to feel because it's upsetting. And I do find myself in my dreams, I'm embarrassed sometimes to find myself getting extremely angry with people. And I wake up and I'm, I'm embarrassed by the anger and the way I've shouted back at people because I tend to repress it in, in life, perhaps overly. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It seems to me that in your books, it's the women who are, who are experiencing a lot of anger, but, but they are experiencing it quietly. They're not letting it out. There's a, there's a moment in um, the short story, The Day in the Life of the Smiling oh, Woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she smiles all the way through, and she's very successful and very busy and self-sacrificing, and at one point, something, her husband is being particularly horrible to her, and she just screams at him. And, and, and that's like a, a kind of click, and after that, things don't make so much sense to her. Her relationships don't make so much yeah, sense. Yeah. In a way, because she's... Is that because she's let their anger out? Is it? Is that? Is yes, it? yes. That was my Doris Lessing phase, I think, <laughs> when I was, when, was full of angry women. But it's yeah. also true that in the millstone, the pivotal scene in the millstone, as many read it, is when Rosamond screams in the hospital, mm, yeah. and that's that is anger. And I am capable of that kind of anger. But again, you, it was on behalf of your girlfriend. I could do it on behalf of my children in a way that I found it very hard to do on my own behalf. Right. Which is the same with the character Rosamond in The Millstone because her yes. anger is a generative anger. Yeah. She loses her temper and she... she on purpose. She, on purpose and yes. that enables her to see her yes. child and yes. um, who, who is in hospital. I, I, I wonder though, talking about The Millstone and indeed much of your earlier work, if, if the more kind of central emotion or guiding emotion for these characters is, is in fact fear. There's a lot of fear, a fear of inconveniencing, of, of behaving how one oughtn't to behave, of upsetting the status quo. Yes. Um, if we're talking about gender, I think women are, are very compliant. They, they try very hard to be compliant and not to um, cause offence. Um, so... I think there is a lot of that in, in my work of women. But on the other hand, there's also some quite forceful people as well. I mean, I, 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 re I had to reread The Millstone the other day for some radio programme. And what I really thought 
I discerned in it that I hadn't discerned so strongly is what, what the women fear is rejection. That's why they're inhibited, that's why they can't say they love somebody, that they're afraid of rejection. And I think that that's an undercurrent in my work of women who are quite brave on some levels, but they're afraid of being rejected on others. And that's just how women, how many women of my generation are. You talk about um, Rosamond in the Millstone, her sort of her bouncing back and forth between cowardice and confidence. Yes, and yes. Presumably that's the same for what you describe, Robert. You've been both insecure and extremely confident. Yes, I think that sometimes that, uh, that kind of, particularly when I'm talking about um, when I was a student, I was using uh, a certain... Um, uh, it came out as arrogance, really, as a sort of self-protective thing. And what I fondly imagined to be my talent uh, as, a, as a comedy actor. Um, and I thought I was pretty good, and I'd deliberately gone there to find out if I was good enough to be in footlights and I decided yes I they decided yes I was and uh, and I yes I was unbearable for a while because I was I was by my third year I was terribly grand and uh, for, for a clown this is a ridiculous look I mean you, <laughs> once you're on stage you just fall over and you do stupid voices and you do footlightsy wordplay sketches but the rest of the time I was sort of swatting around empress of all I surveyed um, and uh, yes it was definitely a self-defense mechanism mm. Um, there's another, I don't know if emotion is the right word, that I want to ask you about, Margaret, in your books, which I find very, um, it's an unusual topic, and it's um, boredom, and the fear of boredom. Oh. It comes... <laughs> 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 I was striking a nerve here. I was struck by there's something in the Ice Age, I was reading the Ice Age, and Anthony Keating, yeah, he's yeah. remembering that there's a, a time when they're on holiday and he gets stuck in the loo, and the rest <laughs> of his family is, I think, down at the beach. Yeah. And, and his his boredom escalates so quickly that pretty soon he thinks, oh, well, if, it, if I'm here for too long, I can just hang myself with my belt. And actually, when I was reading it back, it felt very funny, but the first time, it's really serious. Yeah, he yeah, means yeah. it. He's so yeah. frightened of, of, of the awful boredom that he really yeah. thinks about that. And you have talked about that in other... In other um, in other words, of your works, is this... Is this yeah, boredom um, is a terrifying emotion, <laughs> and uh, it can creep over me so quickly, rather like Anthony stuck in the lavatory. Yeah. I, mean, I think I'm going to die of boredom right now. At this bus <laughs> stop, I'm going to die, because I'm waiting for the bus and it's not going to come. But, but my, my, my father, interestingly, he had a very difficult sort of way... He sort of started life not being allowed to go to university, having to go to night school, and finally, uh, you know, he started as a travelling salesman. And he said he was so bored... And I, oh. I think of his early years when he had no prospects and he was really bored. And I think he admitted to being bored. Really, so ad oh. Adolescents and people in their 20s are often very bored. It's not a very respectable emotion. There's a line of poetry by Berryman, I think, which says, life, my friends, is deeply boring, only we must not say so. Well, exactly. That's, <laughs> why, it's, that's why it's so, it's so unusual that you talk yeah. about it, because it's not... Mm. It's not. Um, it's kind of not okay to it's say, "Oh God, I can't bear this," or "I can't bear the." That saying isn't that the only boring people are bored. Exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite. It's a taboo. It becomes yes. an indictment yeah. on the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So it's you don't say it because bored. it means that, that you yourself that means you, are not. You failed you don't to have think of something fascinating. I, I remember seeing a ninety-year-old lady with my husband, and she, he was interviewing her about something. On and on and on, she mentioned, "I've never been bored for a moment <laughs> in my life." And Michael <laughs> said, "For sure, she knows how to bore other people." <laughs> <laughs> I, felt, I 
felt that there was a lot of truth in that. Yeah. Well, that's the, other, that's the other thing, the fear of being boring. Yeah. That, that was the kind of, you know, the worst, the, the, I was scared of being accused of, of being boring. I thought that was like the worst. So you kind of went out of but your I, way. But also I thought that, that being boring was when you have not enough to say, because I was very shy as a child and I worried that I'm just socially awkward and wouldn't, wouldn't be able to hold my own in a conversation, whereas actually the really boring people are the people who don't shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, some people, some people, you know, Brian Blessed, he's welcome to talk and talk. Um, yeah. but, uh, but, you know. But I wondered if, if either of you, actually, at any point, had ever found it, because you both also talk about life in a small town, sometimes in a small town in Lincolnshire, in fact. Yes, indeed. I, know I Lincolnshire. wondered if you ever found that, the, the, the boredom that can be experienced there, to be creative or galvanising or energising or just boring. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably something to be said for leaning back on your chair and staring out of the window, mm. if you're a writer, and, and not to have too much stimulation, but that I, I enjoy not having too much stimulation. I think at heart I'm bone idle and that I've, I've managed to do what I've done because I'm scared of, uh, I'm scared of that. I, I know left to my own devices, I just do nothing. <laughs> so, um, so yes, I, I think there's something to be said for keeping your mind fallow for, for the occasional period, I suppose. Again, in my huge experience. <laughs> Um, again, both of you um, in your work, um, and again, if we could start with, with you, Margaret, because you, uh, while tackling the family, you, you progressively through, through the years, you, your, your novels seem to have opened out more and become increasingly sociologically minded. Mm -hmm. um, I, wonder, I wonder whether that was, that was a conscious choice to sort of open it out and broaden it into a kind of a, a, a bigger work in that sense. Or, I mean, what, what brought that about? I mean, I was sort of thinking about the sort of the 70s when that sort of started and consecutive conservative governments with it some kind of reaction against that idea of there being no society, although Margaret Thatcher's famous comment didn't come till 87, I think. Mm. But I, I think what happened was that when I started, started to write, I, I was really quite housebound. I mean, I was a typical housebound housewife with three small children. And um, so I wrote about what was there. I wrote about that experience, which resonated with many, many women. There were many educated women like me who found themselves with, with narrowed horizons rather than broader horizons. But then, as the children grew older and started to go to school and then just grew up generally, I was able to engage with a, with a wider um, social um, sort of range of subjects. And, and what frustrates me now is that I'm fascinated by the banking crash and by Brexit, uh, but I just feel too, I haven't got enough leg force to go and pursue the topics that I used to have in the 70s and 80s. So I, I feel these subjects, although I would like to tackle them, I haven't got the, the physical energy to pursue them. So in a way, my, my canvas has shrunk again. Well, you, it's gone you back to the domestic. You continue, certainly in The Dark Flood Rises, you continue to pursue housing. Because I'm fascinated by housing, mm. it's true. No, it, no it, the, the Dark Flood Rises is a social novel, but it's about the, so, the sociology of ageing, really, mm. which, is, which is, I have to say, a narrowing and eventually terminal topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, Robert, you talking about time and place, or specifically place at this, at this point, um, back in Lincolnshire. Um, one of the most striking things that, uh, that I found in reading the book is, and it's, it's so obvious when you point it out, is how early 
homophobia comes into it. How, mm. how homophobia in 1980s Lincolnshire, it's all but automatic. It's, it's almost like a necessary tool for survival. Yes. No, it was made very clear to me that, um, you know, if there was one thing worse than being a girl, it was being gay, and that only gay boys talk to girls. I mean, you have to be gay to want to, to hang out with girls, surely. So, um, that, <laughs> Which doesn't that was make made, much sense when it, you examine some, it more Something closely. of a paradox, yes. <laughs> um, but that was, the, the, those seem to be the rules. I mean, I'd like to think um, that, that things have improved. It's a difficult thing to measure, isn't it? Um, there are a couple of teachers, primary school teachers, in my wife, Abby's family, and they report that playground homophobia has not gone away. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's still there. But I think in the, the culture has moved on so much. And, you know, gay marriage, when I was growing up in the 80s, the idea that two men could get married was just from, from Mars. It was a completely crazy idea. So I think things have changed very quickly, quite, quite recently. But, um, but in terms of, you know, how you uh, perform being a boy, I think that is still, that is still there. And Margaret, do you think it, that's, you've seen that change, obviously, you've seen that social conditions change and attitudes, or, or do you think not that much? I think things have changed enormously. I mean, I entirely agree that one would never have foreseen gay acceptance in the United States as well. I mean, it's just mm. astonishing how things have moved. But of course, I, I don't know what the playground life is like now, because I don't know any... I mean, even my grandchildren are way beyond the playground, so I don't really know what's going on. But I would suspect that Robert is quite right when he says that these attitudes persist um, in, um, in, in many, many children, and, and that sort of little insults are flung around exactly as they were when we were children. Mm. I'm sure that's true. Do you, think, but do you think it might be possible that it also depends where you are? It, I don't know whether it's different mm. in the big cities, or, I mean, as well as time-shaping attitudes, that whether place will shape them as well. It may well do, you know, there might be, you know, an inner-city school uh, compared to a private school in home counties compared to a, a normal school. I, I, I don't know, I'm guessing, but, but, but I would imagine um, that plays a part, yes. And I think teachers are probably more helpful now because, I mean, all this thing about educating people to be aware, it often sounds ridiculous, but there probably is some value in that and in, in getting teachers to look out for certain mm. things that yeah. could go wrong, yeah, yeah, which yeah. certainly wouldn't have been true when we were young. I mean, nobody no, paid any attention in. at all. They'd have joined <laughs> in. Exactly. exactly. So, so thing, on that level, thing, things have improved. You've been listening to an edited version of a TLS event recorded in front of a live audience at Bath Festival with Margaret Drabble and Robert Webb talking to me, Lucy Dallas and Thea Lenarduzzi. Many, many thanks to them and to the audience for joining us. For next week's podcast, Stig and Thea will be back in the studio discussing Philip Roth and his legacy and talking to the Man Booker International winner, Olga Tokarchuk. We'll be sharing more events like this one in the next month or so. Next we'll be at Hay Festival, speaking to the novelist Ian McEwan, the historian Simon Sharma, the playwright and novelist Barney Norris, and the novelist Emma Healy. So do keep checking your podcast feed. This week's issue of the TLS is a philosophy special, with articles on why empathy cuts across species, the limited ambitions of ethical thinking, and why dignity matters, as well as the usual reviews of the most important books and exhibitions, plus an unsettling new short story from the excellent Samantha Schweblin. For now, though, from Thea and from me, goodbye.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.